Hello and welcome back to the Eurotrips Football Podcast, your place for all things domestic European football. I am your host Andy and I'm this week joined by just one returning guest. I'm back with us, it's one of our regulars, is Ryan. Uh, first of all, how are you mate? Yeah, I'm okay mate, thank you. Great stuff, great stuff. It is just the two of us today, um, Naeem and Jonathan both are unable to make it, so it will be just us two. Um, so there will be no Bundesliga or La Liga talk this week, uh, but we are going to be back. Hopefully having both back on next week where we can talk about that as well. You know, it's getting interesting. The bottom of La Liga was Sevilla and Valencia, uh, two of the four bottom teams in the league in Spain, and the Bundesliga, um, which is once actually the, the best title race in Europe in about space of two weeks, has gone from that to being just a two-horse race. So, yeah, I'm sure... They'll be back next week to discuss that in more detail. But of course, there's only really one place to start, and it is the Premier League. And it is, of course, no shock, my performance of the week um, is Liverpool's 7 0 win over Manchester United. This was, you know, this was a game that many, like myself, were thinking, man, you could even win or they could and they could draw. Um, I don't think anyone had Liverpool winning by this much and to win 7 0. Um, absolutely just a stunning result and you know one for me that I I was absolutely overjoyed with I mean it's um, two goals from Salah two goals from Gakpo two goals from Nunes as well as a goal from Bobby Firmino in the same week where of course he did announce that he'll be leaving Liverpool at the end of the season which for me as a massive fan of the bloke it's um, awfully sad to see him go because I have to find now a new favourite player uh, at the club um, but we'll go to you first from the outsider point of view Ryan Um Watching this game yesterday, what was your overall take on on what occurred in those ninety minutes at Anfield? Well, it was funny. <laughs> to be honest with you, <laughs> very funny. I mean, my brother's a Man U fan. I wish he was in the room with me. I wish he was there with me watching it. That would have been extra special. I literally, I, I, I spoke to my dad on the phone prior to the game, and uh, I literally said to him, I "said I hope." United get absolutely smashed today because they they deserve it. Their fans deserve it for how they've been going on over the last few weeks. I know Arsenal fans can can be seen at the moment as uh, you know going a bit OTT, but you know we have every right to be. You know United don't. You know they've had a relatively straightforward run of fixtures. They haven't played too many of the top teams, and as soon as they did, they've come unstuck. Uh, no shock, and I think. Listen, like the scoreline may have flattered Liverpool a little bit simply because United just capitulated, you know, in that second half, especially after the second and third goal went in. They gave up, which if I was a United fan, I would have been absolutely seething with that. You know, I've seen Arsenal do it before a few times in years gone by. So I know the feeling and especially looking at senior players like Bruno Fernandes and his performance in particular, I'd have been absolutely disgusted with that, quite frankly. And I can see why so many pundits and, you know, big Man United fans in the media were so angry. And I think they would, like, like you said, they, they were just shocked, really. No one saw that kind of result coming with the form that both teams have been in, really. But it, just shows you can never, in, in, in big games like that, in big rivalries and derbies, quite often form can go out the window. And 
that's just another prime example of that. Yeah, I thought Fernandez was a disgrace, to be honest with you. I think that, you know, it's all good being a captain when your team's winning. I think that that's a one thing. But I think a real test of a player is really when, when the going gets tough. And I think that it's not just this. There's been a few games in the past where he has almost thrown his toys out the pram. I mean, the body language was not there, you know, and I know he did the post-match interview, but I, I don't know who's, who's put him captain. I know there's an argument, maybe lead by example, in terms of what you do on the pitch, but you think when you got Varane and De Gea there, you think De Gea is someone who's been at the club for so long, he knows the club inside out, and Varane, who's, who is an, who's a natural born leader, and I don't know why he's not been, you know, named captain when Maguire was taken off these duties. Um, and I think that he has shown himself again to be one of the worst losers in the league in terms of how how they react to losses. Um, yeah, I thought it was really unlike Manu. I will say in the first half, I thought Manu were a better team. I did. I thought they had the goals got ruled out. You know, Allison tried his best to give him a goal at times in that game. Um, they had a few chances. Anthony had a couple of chances. Um, but his end product was pretty bad. Um, so I think, you know, going into the half, you're one nil up, but I certainly my, me and my dad certainly weren't thinking we were going to win this game. I think we were still thinking, man, you were going to come back. And I'm sure a lot of people did. And then I think the, the early goal in the second half really um, helped that. I think getting the goal from Nunez within, what, two minutes of the second half, I think that really helped. And I got to our second goal. I know I had, had a massive fire cell the other week when it, when it was going badly. But Fabinho, a guy I love, who probably will be the heir apparent to Firmino, is my favourite player um, when Firmino leaves. It's you got to admire that second goal especially. The work he does was absolutely superb. I mean, the whole counter-attack or the move from us starts from him winning the ball back. And then when I think it was Casemiro or Fred lost the ball, he wins it back again. And then he played the three to Elliot, who, you know, gets the goal. And he's, he's almost in there, actually, for the goal. I think Nunes beat him to it. So I have to really praise Fabinho for his performance in the whole game. But that particular move, I thought, was absolutely brilliant. And, yeah, whilst, you know, I've just mentioned it there. But whilst we, like, you know, I'd be criticising Man U, and I think that the whole team are pretty bad, I've got to also praise Liverpool. Um, we were absolutely brilliant from start to finish. Mo Salah was at his best. I've not seen it be that good, really, since we beat Man U 4 0 the year before, really. I think, you know, it's been the best people performed this year by a mile. Um, I think the only one I can really say I performed badly was probably Allison. Everyone else had a wonderful game. You know, Van Dyke, Canate, Robertson. Robertson was excellent on that left hand side. He really, he, he was so, he was forward a lot and he was constantly involved in the attacks, you know, and he obviously helped out with the first goal. You know, Elliot's been a, a mixture, uh, been a, figure of mixed um, mixed views from Liverpool fans. I think I'm always on the viewpoint that he will come good, but I think Liverpool, fan, Liverpool fans weren't in that same boat, but he was excellent in that game and he was did well for that second goal. You know, Henderson was good. Um, great cross for the second goal from Nunes. And in the front three, what could you say? You know, both all got two goals and Firmino got off the bench and scored his as well. So I think all round, it is a fantastic performance and I think it gives me confidence about that Madrid second leg that whilst you know that was at Anfield and whilst you can look back at the Barca game but also being at Anfield I think you know you know what you never know you only need three goals to get to extra time and I think that whilst it's a very very unlikely chance we could do this I think there's we've got to believe after watching that you know I think we have to we have to have some belief Uh, but I think it it was a perfect weekend for Liverpool fan really because not, not only did Everton drop points, but also Spurs and Newcastle lost, which means that now if we win our game in hand, not sure who is against our game in hand, but if you win that game in hand, then we can move level on points with Tottenham and our goal difference after that win is, is far superior than Spurs. So I think all round, I think that weekend was was absolutely fantastic. And 
the perfect weekend. And speaking of which, we may as well go into the next point. This is definitely my my moment of the week. Um, probably goal of the week as well. Is Reese Nelson's um for Arsenal. Um, you know, it's that goal. I mean, Arsenal. If you don't know the story, they were two 0 down to Bournemouth. They the first goal was in, I want to say nine, ten, eleven seconds, and then they go two 0 down through Tonesi in the second half. You know. All, it all seemed like all it was all going to go wrong. It seemed like one of those days. It could have been a crucial moment in the title race for the wrong reasons. You know, it all seemed to be. And I'm sure Ryan, you and I'm sure Nyan as well were were thinking the words of two nil, and then come back to make it two two, and then last minute of the game, literally, it was now or never. There was no more. You know, there couldn't have been any more time added on. It was all over as it is. And Reese Nelson pops up with a wonder goal from just inside the box, and that is. I think, you know, looking back at the end of the season, I'm sure you'll agree with me, Ryan. I think that goal we looked back with a lot of um with a lot of love. And I think that could be seen, I think, when it comes to May, if you do win the league. I think a lot of people will look back at this goal on the weekend just gone as the defining moment. I don't know what you think about that. It could very well be. It was uh one of the best moments in the Emirates era, especially. You know, there, there aren't many that compare to that. Maybe Welbeck against Leicester or or Arshavin against Barcelona in terms of you know the absolute limbs that we saw in the crowd. It was it was a special atmosphere. It's been a special atmosphere all season, and yeah, it was it was it was an incredible moment just to see. You know, you know, you you know when it's chaos when you've got players running in all different directions. You've got players just absolutely hitting the deck in pure relief because ultimately, yeah, no one saw it coming. I tweeted it. I tweeted it at half time saying I could not see a way back into that game because Bournemouth, they were camped in their own half. And at 2-0, I really didn't see a way back because people forget we didn't have a single recognised striker on the pitch or on the bench after Trossard went off after 20 minutes. Um, we were resorted to playing Martinelli through the middle and he's not a striker or he's not a striker at least yet. And then, you know, we were forced to to bring on Emile Smith-Rowe who's been out for the whole season and, you know, he wasn't fully fit, which was a, which is why he was sort of brought off uh, towards the end. And, you know, quite frankly, to get the goals in the manner of which we did, Surprised me, um, you know. Ben White stepped up, uh, you know. Partey stepped up, and obviously Reese at the end there. You know, um, Hale Hale ends graduate hasn't really been given his chance to shine yet, and you know he's had to be patient quite often this season. He's been left out of the squad, and then yeah, he's he's needed for for one big moment, and it wasn't even just that. Um, he, you know, he was he created. Uh, the assist for, for for Ben White, and he made things happen when he came on at the end of the day. You know, he ran up players. It was a tired Bournemouth defence in the end, so it was a great decision to bring him on by by a bit uh, Mikel. And uh, even though I criticised the, the lineup from the start, the changes he made didn't work to an extent. Tommy Asu didn't play well. That's why he was brought off. Uh, Fabio Vieira didn't play well. He was brought off in the end. So, yeah, so 
you know, incredible moment and who knows what it might mean, like you say, when it comes towards the the end of the season, obviously there's still 12 games left, so still a lot of uh, points there to be won, but there's some big games for both Arsenal and Man City still to play. So who knows, yeah. Yeah, and of course, you still have to play Man City again. I think mm. that's in April at some point, but um, it's a big, it's a big, you know, that's, that's a big, it's a big month for Arsenal. April, I mean, you know, we've got international break coming up. So I think when that international break ends, I think that'll be when it really starts to get serious. But looking back at Nelson's goal, I mean, I did an article actually on this yesterday where you know we see a lot of defining moments from from players that come out of the blue. I mean, you know, you look at first of all, there are some recognised players that have done this. You look at Mares against City for Leicester when they won the league. Robert Huth in the same game. You look at Mane against Aston Villa a few years ago. We won when we won the league, one 0 down to Villa. Mane scored the last minute winner, and that was the week before the City game. You know, turned from potentially being level on points of City to being six nine points clear through those two wins. Um, but you know, you look at you know, the year Leicester won the league. Nathan Dyer scored the last minute winner early on in the season against Villa. Funny enough, and um, and from that moment, just just set a precedent for the rest of the year that Leicester were never gonna. Be knocked, be knocked down. And I think that also the one that everyone's been comparing to that I've certainly looked at is Makeda. You know, Makeda was a guy who made his debut for Man U, age 17. Uh, broke my heart when he scored the last-minute winner against again against Aston Villa. Um, and then a week later, scored against Sunderland. You know, Nathan Dyer only scored one goal in 14 appearances on loan from Swansea. Makeda only scored four Premier League goals and two of those came in those two games. And this is two games where, you know, Man U won the league by four points and those four points came from those wins. So I think Nelson, you know, whilst he's not had the, you know, the career, only 50 odd, just in the 60 appearances for Arsenal in, it was said seven, six, seven years, all known at, you know, Feyenoord and um, Hoffenheim uh, in, during times in his, in his time at Arsenal. But, you know, whatever he does, he's been remembered for that now. And if, if you win the league, they're all going to look back at that moment. And I think that, you know, especially when, there's a period where Arsenal was struggling, you know, the, the, the I think the Villa game certainly um, has brought that back to being, you know, the Arsenal we saw before. But there was times where, you know, you lost to Man City, you dropped points against before that as well. So I think that moment there is really, is going to really be looked back, I think, into season potentially, you know. And Reece Nelson could do, could do nothing else than Arsenal shit. If you win the league by two or three points, He'll never have to buy an Ars- a drink in the Arsenal side of, of London again. You know, I think McKay did the same thing. I mean, I'm sure if he went to a Manchester pub, certainly a Man U fans bar, he would need to buy a drink. You know, uh, Divock Origi, Liverpool, of the Liverpool legend, but he did nothing really uh, apart from a few moments here and there. And I think there's a certain players that seem to just have these moments without really any previous um, sort of regular game time. So I think it's really interesting. I think it's going to be. And interestingly, coming into the season, you know, Watson had, I think, certainly Reese Nelson may have just um, sketched himself into um, into Arsenal folklore. Oh, without a doubt. Like I say, it was, it was brilliant skill as well. I didn't notice it at first when the goal went in. Um, and uh, when I watched it back, the skill he's used to take it down on his chest to, to keep it up with one foot and then to strike it so well with his other foot, with so many bodies in front of him in, in such a high pressure moment as well. You know, he was the calmest player as well when the goal went in. You know, everyone else was going absolutely berserk around him. And you know, he was he was the chillest one, which says a lot about his personality. But 
again, like someone like Eddie Nketiah, you know, they've had to be patient for their opportunities and they've, you know, they've come up when, when we've needed them to be and all this talk about our squad depth and whatnot, it's starting to come back now. You know, Jesus is only a few weeks away. Um, unfortunately, we've lost El Nenny for the rest of the season, who's a, an important squad player. But, you know, we're getting these players back and it's going to make a real big difference, especially as we have um, sporting in the Europa League on Thursday. So it'll be interesting to see what kind of team Mikel does pick for that. But one thing I did want to go on, really, and at first it was going to be a very heavy, heavy rant. Um, I've, I've turned it down a little bit, but it's still something that angered me when I saw it. And uh, it was no surprise of uh, of which radio station it came from. I'm not going to mention that. But it was uh, a certain, uh, I don't know if he's a reporter or a journalist or a pundit, I don't really know what he is. Um, but Adrian Durham, who's someone who has a real hatred for Arsenal and Arsenal fans, I'm not really sure why, to be honest with you. You know, this is someone who uh, who who doesn't rate Dennis Burkamp and left him out of the top five Dutch Premier League players of all time, um, which which was astonishing to me at the time. But he um, he released something in the week, well, Talksport did actually, and uh, and when I saw it at first, I thought it was a joke, but it was actually a, a picture along with a obviously a soundbite from him detailing how how lucky Arsenal have been this season. Um, simply because when we played Manchester United, they had no Casemiro. When we played Brighton, they had no Sosado or McAllister. When we played Liverpool, they had no Luis Diaz. When we played Spurs, they had no Kulazeski or no Bentoncure. When we played Leicester, they had no James Madison. And apparently no, kind, no team deserves that kind of luck. And I, and he, he's been absolutely battered this week by so many people, not just Arsenal fans, but mainly Arsenal fans, for for, for coming out with such rubbish. And, and you know, I, I, I couldn't believe it because we we have not been lucky this season. We, we, we've been unlucky when when you take the whole perspective into you know, into the picture. You know, if you're that, that, that anti-Arsenal and you hate us that much, of course you're going to nitpick at certain little things. You're going to try and find things, but I'm sorry, you cannot find anything this season to to even indicate that we are lucky. People obviously think straight away we've had no Gabriel Jesus for 14 games since obviously the World Cup, and he's going to miss a few more as well. In that game against Liverpool, where he mentions that Liverpool had no Luis Diaz, um, we had no Alexander Sinchenko in there, arguably a more important player for us. We played Tommy Asu at left back, a position that he wasn't comfortable in, up against one of the best wingers in the world. You know, Emil Smith Rowe, who was one of our best players last season, has been injured all season. Um, Partey has missed quite a lot of games. Zinchenko, as I mentioned, has missed quite a lot of games. And then even going away from injuries, against Bournemouth at the weekend, I mentioned it earlier, we had no strikers after the 20 minutes, all three injured. We had four penalties go to VAR. Not one was given, albeit one or two of them probably weren't penalties, but two of them definitely were, in my opinion. For Bournemouth's first goal, uh, they were encroaching in our half. And I even saw today 
um, a former referee, can't remember his name, but he basically said that goal shouldn't have counted because of the Bournemouth players encroaching. It should have been retaken. Uh, obviously, the lines were not drawn against Brentford, which actually resulted in a referee uh, or a VAR official, whatever he was at the time, getting the sack, something that we never ever see. We also never ever see an apology given to a club because of a referee mistake, something that Arsenal were given. We have the two penalties not given against Newcastle, a goal wrongly dismissed against Leicester, a, role, uh, a goal wrongly dismissed against Manchester United earlier on in the season, a penalty not given against Southampton. Now, I could go on all day. And, you know, we've had teams relentlessly this season time waste against us as well, something that hasn't been punished in, in a lot of games. Bournemouth goalkeeper Neto did it all game on Saturday. He got a book in, arguably should have got another book in uh, for, for continuing to do it after that. And then people talk about, oh, we scored in the 98th minute when they're only six minutes at a time. No, open your ears and listen. It's a minimum of six added minutes. And that was because I believe 10 substitutes were made. It might have been eight. I can't remember. All right. But they take around 30 seconds per substitute, plus all the time wasting from Bournemouth. And then you get into added time. And the first minute of added time, a Bournemouth player is down feigning an injury. So what, just going to not count that minute? No, of course not. They add that minute on. And we actually scored in the 97th minute, not in the 98th. So I'm not sure why people are saying that all of a sudden. And it just winds me up because this is coming from mainly from opposition fans. And I can understand that. If you're the team at the top, you're always going to be the target. It's it's happened to Man City in the past. It's happened to Liverpool in the past. You know, whoever's at the top, you know, every little team and club and fan will try and find ways to bring them down to their level. And I understand that. We've had our banter years. We've had the rough times, the shit times over the last few years, you know, being embarrassed at clubs. We've had that. Every other club has had it as well. Liverpool went through that period. United have been through that period. Man City and Chelsea, before they got that oil money, they were going through that period for a lot longer than the other three teams, let me remind you. Spurs are not in the conversation because they ain't a big club. But it's just annoyed me that these fans are trying to find things to bring us down. You know, for so long, the Emirates has been criticised for being a library. Now it's got a bit of atmosphere. It's cringy all of a sudden. Like, come on, give me a break. Like, no. So I just needed to get that out there because this isn't my only platform to to really say anything in in, in, in such a manner. And I needed to, to ultimately get it off my chest because it's just infuriated me, you know, this week. And don't get me wrong, there are fans of certain fan bases that, you know, are are awful and are embarrassing to those other fans. But listen, the majority of other supporters at these big clubs are all right. You know, you're a Liverpool fan, I'm an Arsenal fan. You know, we can we can debate, you know, seriously and, and fairly at the end of the day, but other people cannot. And uh, yeah, just I'm rambling now, but yeah, I'm just frustrated. No, I think you're perfectly entitled to ramble on because everything you said was completely spot on and make a very good point there. I mean, even if there was any luck involved, I mean, what team doesn't get luck at the top? I mean, look, I'm 
since you've been making this this rant, I've been trying to write down all the teams I can think of that have a luck. I mean, you look at Barcelona 2009, the Iniesta goal game, where the refereeing really was appalling and Barcelona should never have won that game. You look at Manu and the Fergie all his years, the Fergie time, you know, all the amount of time added on, all the luck they got along the way. When we won the league, the handball from Trent against Man City, you know, that was, we got luck in that way the year we won the league. Um, when we won the Champions League 2005, the ghost goal in the semi-final against Chelsea, that was luck. Um, we look at the Madrid Champions League win against us first time round. They got lucky from a Carrius um, disaster show. You know, Man City last season, Rodri's handball, you know, Leic- Leicester's title winning season. In a way, they got lucky because no other team were really that good this year. City, United, Chelsea, Arsenal, Spurs, Liverpool were all off it. So, I always say to people, and even look at, you know, whether we go to different sports here, but Tom Brady's always been said the luckiest quarterback ever. But again, no one wins titles or cups without luck along the way. Everyone gets luck. It's just part of the game. And you have to you have to have some luck some luck along the way if you want to win trophies. And that's just how it is. So even if there was any luck involved, that's what top teams get. And that's just how it rolls. And no good teams don't get luck. And I think you have to have along the way. So for me, I think that point, you're completely right. I think it's a you know, whilst you know those things do stand as they are, at the same time, goes back to my point: who doesn't get luck? Um, we are going to head to a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk all things Syria, including Napoli's just their second loss of the season in the league. And welcome back to the episode. We're now going to move attention from all things going on in England to all things going on in Italy. So, Ryan, take us away with what's been happening over the weekend in Syria. Yes, well, we began proceedings on Friday night with the league leaders, Napoli, in a big game against Lazio, who, as I mentioned last week, are in the hunt for Champions League football. And we saw a little bit of a shock, actually, because Lazio won the game 1-0. A really, really good goal from Matthias Ficino, a powerful stroke from outside of the area. Uh, Napoli won their usual selves. They weren't at their very best, but... No team throughout a league campaign is at their best every single game. So you can uh, you can kind of expect it, especially up against a quality team in Lazio. I mean, it's not really made much of a difference. Although Inter did win, the gap is still 15 points. It's not going to be closed with 13 games unless some kind of curse is, uh, is you know, laid on Napoli. But yeah, I don't think it will make much difference in terms of um, who will win the Squadetto. But in terms of some surprise results that I didn't see coming, uh, Milan were beaten by Fiorentina 2-1. Um, goals from Nic- Nicolas Gonzalez and uh, Luka Jovic. Terry Hernandez did get a consolation goal in the 95th minute. But apart from that, um, Fiorentina, they, they deserved the win. And there's such a, such a frustrating club because... They, you know, they often have quality players. They have a, you know, quality fan base as well. Very old school stadium. And yet they're just so inconsistent. You never know what you're going to get from them. And it's frustrating because they've got a lot of potential there. But yeah, they're still languishing in 12th in the league. So they're not going to achieve much this season. Uh, In terms of another Champions League um, contender, Atalanta, again, they dropped points at home to Udinese in a nil-nil game. That was one I was definitely not expecting, especially how 
Atalanta play on the front foot, full throttle attacking football. So I'm amazed that they didn't score. I'm amazed they didn't concede, to be honest with you. But Udinese, they've not been the same since the start of the season when they were on a rampant run of form. Uh, we fought, saw a few other nil-nil games as well. Like I mentioned earlier, Inter did win 2-0, although they weren't very inspiring in that game against Lecce. But really, the big game of the weekend was Roma against Juventus, a game in which Jose Mourinho was due to be suspended for. Um, that suspension was lifted in the end, so he was on the touchline. And it was a good job he was because, um, like I say, they got the win. 1-0 Gianluca Mancini, the centre-half, getting it just after the second-half whistle. We saw a late red card to Moise Kane, who was idiotic. He'd only been on the pitch 40 seconds, and then they got into a confrontation. And it was ultimately sent off for it. So, you know, really, really silly from him. And like I say, that's really stopped Juve in their tracks now because they were making actually some good ground, even though they got this 15 points reduction. They were on a good run run of uh, winning form. But that defeat is now, you know, it still left them 12 points outside of the top four. So I would still be shocked if they managed to get Champions League football for next season. But elsewhere, nothing's really, really sort of changed. Um, you know, there's currently... Eight points separating second and sixth. I think with Atalanta dropping points in recent weeks, unless they pick up some form very, very soon, they could very well see themselves out of the running for Champions League football. And it could be left between both Milan clubs and both Rome clubs as well, which will be very interesting to see come the end of the season, which one does in fact lose out because... Let's face it, they all need the money that the Champions League brings in, especially in the Milan. Christ, it would be, be massive if they lost out because of the financial troubles that they're currently in. They're having to sell a pl big player pretty much every single summer. Um, they've got to sell, I believe, players worth up to €60 million Euros this summer just to break even. That's before they can even potentially buy anyone. I think this is why we've seen in recent transfer windows They've been going for either free transfers or for loan signings or players towards the end of their careers like Mkhitaryan and uh, Chalanoglu as well. So, you know, it's uh, it's going to come to a point now very, very soon where they have really no elite players left to sell. And uh, if they don't do some serious business in the summer, if the club cannot be sold they could very well see themselves on the decline over the next couple of seasons, which would be a big shame because they're a huge club in Italy, um, not just in Italy, in Europe, really. So, of course, we want to see these massive historic clubs um, at the top, really. But, yeah, I mean, that's as much as I can say for Serie A over the, you know, over the weekend. Uh, you know, Monza, they got a win uh, at home, another good result for them. That keeps them in the top 10, incredibly. And if they can finish in the top 10 in their first season in, in Serie A, it would be an incredible, monumental achievement. And, uh, yeah, it's going to be exciting to watch um, watch how they go for the rest of the season. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think it's um, a league that's certainly going under the radar in terms of the quality of teams. I mean, looking at the, the Champions League, I mean, AC Milan getting a result against Tottenham, 
Inter Milan as well. You know, both of them doing well. Uh, then again, result against Porto. I mean, of course, Milan faced Tottenham um, on Wednesday. Um, we are going to hopefully do a European one either this Friday or next Friday. But you know, in terms of that, um, you would you back Milan against Tottenham? Or uh, do you think maybe the fact they're home and now they're playing away from home maybe uh, may go against them in the second leg? It's uh, see, I'd love to say that Milan will will go through, but I don't know. Is the honest question because Tottenham have been in really poor form over the last couple of weeks with uh, going out of the FA Cup to Sheffield United. They were beaten on the weekend to Wolves, and obviously Milan were beaten as well at the weekend. So. I'm not sure. Obviously, Milan hold a slender lead, but it's only one goal. That doesn't mean too much in the Champions League. We know how quickly things can change. So, I still think it's 50-50 in terms of who goes through. When you've got Harry Kane in your team, you can always you know, find two or three goals from nowhere, which Tottenham do sometimes do. So, yeah, I think it is genuinely 50-50. And it's probably... Um, the same for Inter as well against Porto because Porto have quality players that can hurt them. And I wouldn't be writing Porto off in that game either. Um, but like I say, anything can happen in the Champions League. So at the moment, I would say both ties are still 50-50. Okay, okay. Um, I think we'll end it there. Um, has been a, probably a shorter episode than normal, but you know, we hope next week to be back with the awesome foursome. Um, not sure I'll use that phrase ever again. Um, but yeah, that has been the Euro Trips Football Podcast. I've been Andy, this has been Ryan, and we will see you guys next time. Bye.